right. Welcome, everyone. Uh, my name is Dimash. I'm the host. And our guest for today is Denise Karlinian, who is the Asia Business Development uh, Manager at Runa Capital. Hi, Denise. Hi, Dimash. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, really happy to be here. Um, this is actually my first podcast, so sorry, guys, just in advance if I say something wrong, but I'll do my best to <laughs> say everything right. Uh, no worries, no worries. Uh, our podcast is also <laughs> quite new, so uh, don't worry. Uh, first question, uh, who is the Asia Business Development Manager at Venture Capital Firm? What's the responsibilities? Yeah, it's kind of, uh, it's a long title. <laughs> uh, sometimes I just call myself the head of uh, Asia office. So I'm the only guy here in Asia for Runa Capital. So um, I'm basically in charge of three things. Um, I'm helping our portfolio companies to expand to the Asian region. I help them with fundraising as well. I do fundraising for the fund from Asia and I source uh, deals in um, APAC region as well. So essentially because our fund uh, is focused mostly in Europe and the US, we kind of decided to uh, start developing uh, APAC uh, basically three years ago when I joined um, uh, the fund. And uh, um, this is the title that uh, we kind of came up with uh, just kind of to highlight that. Yeah, I kind of, uh, I, I'm the one um, who basically uh, tries to figure out what we can do with Asia. Um, mm -hmm. And essentially, um maybe uh, it's worth mentioning that um i've been focusing on asia pretty much my whole career and um uh the fund itself uh had some limited exposure to asia and that's that's why basically when i joined runa three years ago um and we were discussing like what we're going to do with asia what, what are my kpis what, what are my tasks like basically the uh, main task was just to figure out what we can do. That's yeah. uh, that's as precise as it uh, as it sounded, and uh, basically that's uh, uh, what I'm still kind of trying to do. Uh, but I think we've uh, had quite a lot of success in this area. Um, yeah, would be happy to dive deeper. Mm -hmm. We'll speak about the rune a bit later. Uh, let's talk about you first of all. What's your personal background? Uh, originally, you are from Russia. Uh, where did you study? Uh, what was your early career moves? Yeah, uh, I'm originally from Russia. Um, I graduated from... Um, so I have like a quite unusual uh, background for VCs, I may say, uh, because my background is more like economics plus international relations. I graduated from uh, Moscow Institute of International Relations, GIMO. And um, I started uh, in Berlin, in Germany, uh, during my bachelor at the Pioneer Set to Berlin. I spent uh, half a year in, in um, Germany, and then I graduated my master's uh, from Beijing um, in China uh, at the uh, University for, of International business and economics um, and there I learned Chinese as well and basically after that I decided to focus entirely on Asia um, and uh, um, in my early career I've been focusing 
uh, first on energy, because uh, apart from economics, uh, we also had like a special angle on energy. That's why energy tech like nuclear um, renewables were very interesting for me uh, as a technology itself. And um, uh, I started my career from working at um, a nuclear corporation, like at several companies in Russia, also in China. It was quite an interesting experience back in the day. Uh, and uh, then I worked at energy consulting and that was a very helpful experience for me because uh, consulting basically taught me um, a lot of things about finance, about um, trying to work with different people, trying to basically understand what the demands of uh, corporates uh, like we were uh, preparing an um, innovation project for uh, the largest power company, uh, one of the largest power companies in Russia. Um, and uh, then uh, I had another interesting experience, which uh, was related um, directly with China. So uh, maybe not with technology, but with China, I was managing the project of constructing a chocolate factory in China. Uh, so basically it was, it was pre COVID, uh, it, the, the whole part of the project, like lasted, I think year and a half pretty much. And, uh, I was in charge of basically the whole, like the whole process of finding, um, land, negotiating with the local Chinese governments, uh, finding, the uh, uh, financing, like from the banks was, a uh, project financing, uh, communicating with um, uh, contractors, subcontractors, construction companies, lawyers. We were drafting uh, investment agreement in Chinese and uh, English um, and uh, basically building the whole financial model. So it's quite an interesting experience, I think, very hands-on, very operational. Unfortunately, the project didn't go far uh, because of COVID. It was frozen and at some uh, time I uh was back in consulting i joined uh, uh, a consulting firm which was focused on uh technologies in china it's called eurasia development uh, i joined it actually as a co-founder uh other uh the founder himself he lived in china for like uh, 14 years and we were doing like a new thing in, in russia back in the day we were helping the corporates to source uh, technologies from China, like deep tech technologies, like battery technologies, construction tech, like AI uh, technologies there. And that was also quite interesting experience for me. And then I joined Runa. Mm -hmm. <laughs> How do you ended up in the VC fund? You just joined yeah, Runa. Uh... What was the iteration? Was it the, the intro or you just applied the CV? No, actually, I didn't apply. Uh, frankly, my understanding of uh, VC was a bit wrong before I joined Runa. And um, uh, I remember that I always, uh, I, I've always thought like, uh, I've always thought that all the funds are have very boring job of working in Excel, basically analyzing the financials all the time sitting in, uh, at the desk and yeah, just basically a lot of things that probably was, was the case with consulting. Um, what I didn't know and what I learned about uh, VC at Runa is that 
in particular, VC is more about talking to people, more about personal relationships, more about um, really building network and network is your main asset. And I think that's something that I didn't know about VC and that's maybe something that really kind of, um, that is a really appealing for me. Um, and uh, I think uh, basically what I've always kind of dreamed, like uh, what would be my perfect uh, job is working with technologists, working with people, trying to commercialize technologies. I think VC is the perfect place for this because you have like many different topics, deep tech topics. Uh, you help founders to not only, you not only provide money to them, you basically help them grow, commercialize the technology, expand to new markets and figure out how this technology that they invented or that they productize can actually get uh, the usage. And uh, that basically what brings this technology to reality and makes the future happen. And I think that's the most exciting thing uh, for me in VC. I was pleasantly surprised when um, on the first interview, our uh, partner explained uh, this to me. I, and, I, and I realized, oh, actually it's, it sounds really cool. Mm -hmm. And do you have some uh, insight about how to build the proper network how to uh, build your network at the early career? Um, it's a good question uh, because uh, usually when I asked like more experienced uh, managers, partners or whoever, like how do you get those contacts? How do you basically uh, get in touch with those people that you need, like with investors, with potential partners, customers, they say through the interest. And I was like, okay, but, uh, how do you get the interest if you don't have the context? And, uh, that's like, well, a, a lot of senior people cannot actually explain it because they've been building this networks for so long time that they actually forgot how, how they. Uh, uh, how, uh, how they build this network in the first place. Like they just know people, they just have the relationships. And uh, I think uh, in the early stage, when you just start from zero, um, you have nothing uh, better to do just to come up with a very appealing uh, thesis. Like for example, I can uh, uh, maybe it's easier to explain uh, with example. Uh, when I joined Runa, my task was first to figure out how we can work with China, because uh, because my previous experience was China, and um, uh, because I uh, I speak Chinese, uh, it kind of made sense to start with China. But it's still like a lot of um, a lot a lot of things uh, I had to start from the very beginning. Like I didn't know any VC firms in China when I joined Runa. I didn't know any. Uh, well, I knew some startups, but not, not like at large scale. I didn't know any corporates. And um, what really helped me, like uh, essentially, I did a lot of cold outreach. And I think at some point I became quite good at the cold out outreach because the people just the well they don't know you and there is no way you can get access to them so you just reach out to them and call in linkedin 
Uh, it was the time when LinkedIn was still allowed in China, so um, it was possible. Nowadays, I, I wouldn't recommend anyone using this method. Um, but the most um, important in this is basically to figure out the thing that you guys do the best. Mm -hmm. uh, and in our case, um, I really analyzed everything, uh, all the expertise that we have at Ura, and uh, I uh, came up with um, like two or three things that we do the, uh, the, uh, the best. One, uh, one is cloud infrastructure open source, one is quantum computing, and one is fintech. So, uh, and then I basically focused only on those, on, on those three topics. And uh, uh, when I approach a uh, person like from Tencent, for example, or from Baidu, from Huawei, or from other like pretty big guys, I approach them with a thesis that, well, in we are a leading investor in quantum computing. Like maybe mm -hmm. you guys uh, don't know us, maybe you don't know me, but you clearly know the companies we invested in, or for example, we know that you are interested in this area and you don't have that much expertise yet. We do, so let's talk. And basically this focus worked and it works so far when I uh, reach to, for example, new uh, corporates, new geographies like Korea, for example, currently I, I, I didn't have any network in Korea, but now that's where I start and uh, we got quite a quite good leads from there for our portfolio companies and um, same for Jap even for Japan, like very uh, hard markets. Uh, it still works when you are very clear about the value you can bring to, uh, yeah, to the contact and uh, uh, when you can really very precisely, uh, but in a also very concisely uh, convey the message why you are one of the top leading like investment firm, firms or uh, leading experts in particular this area so i think it, and then of course um another very important thing is to um consistently bring value to your new contacts uh to maintain those um uh, that network to figure out how you can for example, share portfolio companies with them, how you can create pipeline for them, how you can help them in any other way. And then you create, uh, create a relationship that is lasting like for many years. And then you can say, yes, I have relationship with like these guys. And then we can like uh, work together. Then they can introduce other people as well. But this is the beginning. And I think, um, yeah, it kind of, it helped me uh, when I started it from scratch. All right. Yeah. Nice. Nice answer. Uh, let's talk about the Runa Capital. Uh, what's the story? Who's the founders of the Runa? Yeah. So um, Runa was started in 2010 um, by serial entrepreneurs, um, Serge Bell, Ilya Zubarev, and uh, Dmitry Chikhachev. Uh, previously, uh, they created uh, several large software businesses. The largest one is called Acronis. It's a cybersecurity 
unicorn from Singapore and Switzerland. Uh, the previous round was valued at $3.5 billion led by BlackRock. Uh, so they basically started from uh, backup and disaster recovery solutions. And now they expanded to providing like the whole cybersecurity cloud, uh, cloud cybersecurity stack for uh, mid-sized IT uh, service providers. Um, and uh, it's a global company basically, but it was born in Singapore and um, yeah, expanded to US, Europe, um, Japan and other markets. Um, then there were other companies like Parallels, which is uh, um, virtualization software. One of the first virtualization software on the market that was sold, uh, it was quite a big exit uh, to uh, KKR uh, Carol. And um, Acumatica is another company, is a cloud ERP um, solution, which was also sold to uh, EQT. So the founders previously built a lot of uh, tech, like pretty complex tech businesses. Uh, and uh, basically, uh, they started uh, from angel investing, but then they created the Runa First Fund to institutionalize the investments and uh, to uh, help other founders to scale and to uh, create similar companies. Uh, that's basically the story. Um, and uh, we're currently at fund four. So mm -hmm. we have more than half a billion dollars under management. So we are a pure uh, early stage VC investor. We invest in seed series A um, and uh, we have three main topics we invest in, uh, which is deep tech, uh, B2B SaaS, and uh, FinTech infrastructure. Uh, deep tech, uh, we started from cloud infrastructure, uh, which is basically explained uh, by the background of the founders that uh, Parallels is a cloud infrastructure. Acronis may be considered as cloud infrastructure as well. So uh, we had already quite deep knowledge in this space, and then we invested in Engine X, which is uh, one of the largest web servers. And uh, we invested in this company very early when uh, we basically led Series A round. Uh, it, it was just a team of like five or six technical people in Moscow, and uh, we helped them to move to the US. We uh, helped them hire uh, CEO and uh, then support the company with the fundraising rounds. And then there was a big exit. So we, saw, uh, we sold this company for nearly a uh, unicorn um, valuation. Um, and uh, uh, so this is cloud infrastructure. And then we more and more pivoted towards um, things like um, AI infrastructure and future of computing. So currently we say that we are one of the top 10 investors globally in future of computing. So future of computing is basically the continuation of cloud infrastructure and cloud computing. This is, uh, this includes quantum computing, optical computing, photonics, um, and other technologies that are focused on solving the problem of, um, um, computing power bottlenecks. Like there is a, a uh, huge demand from AI, from edge devices, and uh, the, uh, there is a 
Moore law, which is reportedly bre uh, breaking, uh, but there are a lot of technologies that are um, solving this problem and that are enabling the um, uh, next technological revolution. Like for example, AI creates a lot of demand uh, and uh, for data for uh, consumption of computing power. So basically, if you uh, uh, there are uh, there are forecasts, um, I think made by McKinsey, uh, saying that uh, by two uh, by two thousand fifty, the amount of data that we consume will increase by several dozens of thousand times. So basically, currently we may say that we live in a stone age of um, data um, and uh, of course something needs to be fundamentally changed in the infrastructure as well and that's what we invest in we uh, invest also in AI but uh, our main investment thesis is that we really invest in technologies that enable um, those uh, tech technological trends and uh, this is future of computing this is deep tech uh, then we invest in B2B SaaS. B2B SaaS is uh, quite uh, conservative, but still very um, solid investment thesis. We invest in enterprise SaaS with a very healthy unit economics. So now we see uh, more and more AI enabled enterprise SaaS companies. So uh, especially in Europe and the US, uh, there are quite a lot of interesting opportunities. Um, and FinTech infrastructure is also very interesting. So. It's specific, we specifically call it fintech infrastructure, not fintech, because we invested in a few challenger banks back in the day, but uh, the major thesis is built around, again, investing in infrastructure, uh, which enables, for example, other challenger banks to launch their products or legacy incumbent banks to um, uh, modernize to digitize their legacy infrastructure uh, and we invested in a company called Mambu uh, German company uh, which provides a core banking platform and uh, this company uh, basically it powers such uh, challenger banks as N26 for example in Germany um, Time Bank using them in South Africa in Vietnam, basically three out of four digital banks use them as an infrastructure. Uh, and uh, it's a it's a big company already. So we, we invested in Series A and now it's a, it's a $5 billion company. Uh, so this is one of the opportunities that we think are really interesting in FinTech because the problem of uh, uh, digitizing the space is just huge. It's enormous. It still hasn't been solved maybe just only 5% of the uh, problem is solved and uh, the market is extremely huge. And then there are also opportunities uh, like embedded finance uh, and uh, companies which enable non-financial companies to issue loans, for example, or to issue cards like uh, debit cards, for example, for spending or uh, marketplaces like e-commerce, which uh, have a lot of data, which have a lot of merchants, uh, a lot of uh, uh, turn uh, turnover of uh, the products and cash, and they can basically provide those loans to the customers and it's easier for them rather than for the bank to 
uh, go and approach and uh, look for those merchants because banks usually don't have enough data and uh, they do not have the direct access. So these are three areas that we really focus on nowadays. Um, and uh, yeah, I think the, we're pretty much excited uh, how they will evolve in the future. Mm -hmm. So the US and the Europe are the main target geos for the Runa capital. And as I understand, there was no open uh, position for the Asia Development Manager. So you came uh, to the Runa with an offer or how would it was? No, but, well, basically it was, um, uh, it, it was done through the intro. So, uh, um, Runa was looking for, um, a person who could lead this area. Mm. Um, there are just not that many people, frankly, who understand both VC and Asia, uh, outside of Asia. That's why, um, kind of, I, I guess that was, uh, there was a good match, uh, and, uh, um, basically, yeah, that, that was the idea. Um, and, uh, I think it, uh, turned out to be quite a good opportunity. Mm -hmm. Uh, so what can you say about the startup ecosystem in the Asia, in China, for example, we already mentioned mm -hmm. Southeast Asia in our podcast, but, uh, we never touched the Chinese ecosystem. That's very interesting. Yeah. Um, about the, well, the um, ecosystem itself in APAC uh, is very diverse. Um, so I cover Southeast Asia, China, Korea, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, India. Uh, and I may say that each of these locations are very different. Uh, if you judge by the size of fund, uh, VC funding, for example, that startups receive, um, the whole app, APAC is pretty much comparable with the US, um, I would say, uh, in terms of the funding, uh, maybe a bit larger, uh, because China is pretty much the half of the US. Um, if you if you open like Crunchbase or DealRoom, there will be like, uh, I think, four times uh, less for China. But if you open uh, the Chinese database like ITDUZA, uh, you will basically see that it's um, like 50% of the U US funding or even even more. Uh, and it's still the case, like um, China is half of the ecosystem in Asia. Um, and then you have India, of course, which is pretty much compare, uh, comparable with the UK. UK is like, it's a very large ecosystem. Um, and then you have South Korea, Singapore, uh, Japan, Australia, and then Southeast Asia. So this is by size. And, uh, if you look at the industries where startups usually build their products, uh, you have quite basic products in Southeast Asia and South Asia, uh, like, uh, FinTech, for example, and I mean like B2C payments are, or some basic spend management. Um, challenger banks are currently just starting to take off in Philippines, uh, Indonesia. Uh, and then you have like a super hard deep tech in China, which 
in some areas is even stronger than the US uh, is just very kind of isolated. Uh, like uh, in some industries, like for example, nuclear energy or in space tech, uh, China is um, in some areas is even stronger. Uh, everything related to hard tech, like hardware tech, China is way ahead of any um, other countries. Um, and um, then you have, of course, Japan, Korea, which are also quite advanced because of the high scientific level. Uh, also a lot of deep tech. Um, I see quite interesting quantum companies coming out of Japan, for example, or uh, AI slash edge computing companies coming out of Japan. Uh, so Japan is an interesting market. Australia is extremely interesting location as well. There are a lot of very, very strong universities there and uh, also very good, uh, uh, very high quality of uh, research and technologies and quantum as well in optics. Um, Singapore also, in terms of deep tech, is a is a still a very strong hub because the government supports the ecosystem quite a lot. Um, and uh, Singapore is basically a hub, so uh, a lot of, for example, Chinese scientists are coming to Singapore or uh, Australian companies which grow to a certain stage, they uh, relocate to Singapore as well, because Singapore, uh, in Singapore, it's easier for them to get funding uh, as, a, as a deep tech project. Um, so yeah, that's pretty much kind of very high level. Uh, I could dive into details, uh, but uh, it's a clear kind of differentiation between like China, uh, Japan, Korea, Australia, uh, Singapore, and then the rest, like um, less deep tech, more um, light tech, I would say, but uh, still very big market. Um, another interesting thing to mention is that um, actually Southeast Asia was really hot in terms of funding and in terms of the um, tech ecosystem in, 2000, uh, in 2021. Um, and then if you uh, look what happened in 2022 and then what is happening in 2023 is that um, kind of the hype is gone a little bit. So a lot of uh, startups raised very big rounds uh, in 2021 and then currently they either cutting uh, the staff or closing or just, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe they're do doing good, but uh, I feel that a lot of um, a lot of projects, a lot of startups that emerged um, during 2021 in, in the region, they basically they uh, turned out to be quite uh, overestimated in terms of the the problem they're solving, in terms of the quality of the company, the execution itself. So, um, for example, like uh, funding in Indonesia uh, decreased from 10, mil uh, 10 billion in 2021 to like 4 billion in 2022. So it's just, it's very, it's very dr drastic drop. Um, and uh, I think it's still maybe, uh, it's not fundamental. It's like high, uh, every, every hype, it has its pros and cons. Like, uh, 
um, the, uh, the markets themselves, they're very uh, big and uh, there are a lot of problems that needs to be solved here, but maybe in turn, maybe the timing is the most um, important here. And uh, probably for markets like Vietnam or um, Indonesia, Philippines, like uh, they still quite underdeveloped in many um, in many areas and uh, some problems like for example trying to solve the problems that that have been successfully solved in Europe or the US trying to solve them in Indonesia may not always be a good um, use case uh, because it's just too early because the problem itself is either very hard to solve or the problem itself is not very big so far yeah, I agree. The Southeast Asia had the uh, record least funding in uh, first half of 2023 since 2020, uh, with only 2.5 billion in funding in the region. Mm. And uh, and you saying that in China or in Japan, for example, there was no uh, that uh, hype and no that drastic drop in 2023. Um. In China, well, for China, uh, it's different because China lives its own life. I would say, uh, China had uh, quite quite a drop during COVID, and then there is a trade war, a lot of geopolitical reasons, then the regulation. Like um, basically, for me, uh, I was pretty much maybe not shocked, but uh, I think for me it was it, it was very. Uh, a very strong signal when uh, the Chinese government just uh, destroyed the commercial edu tech, education tech uh, industry in China. Yeah. And uh, when, when you had uh, companies like Zui uh, Pang or Yanfuda uh, who raised like uh, $2 billion each in, in January 2021, from Temasek and uh, Tencent and other guys, and then they basically ceased to exist. It's just, well, of course, that's a huge hit on the startup ecosystem. But it's still um, in China, surprisingly, like if you compare 2021, 2022, 2023, it's relatively stable. Um, same in Japan. Uh, in Korea, it's um, surprising surprisingly it grew like uh maybe two or three times um but unfortunately it was like unfortunately for us it was still most not really about the deep tech and b2b SaaS. it was more about crypto or um some uh, like media related like uh, culture related b2c consumer businesses because uh, korea is really strong like uh, the k uh, k-pop culture and basically everything like it that's the biggest driver i think uh, maybe one of the biggest drivers for uh the korean startup ecosystem um but in general it's like those markets are quite stable they didn't have any hard drops singapore itself surprisingly as well um despite the drop in like in uh, neighbor countries Singapore was quite stable because again Singapore has it's uh, has both like the um, uh, fintech 
B2B SaaS, uh, which is projected from Southeast Asia, but also a lot of deep tech stuff, a lot of um, uh, companies from Japan, for example, I know that uh, at least a few companies from Japan, deep tech companies, which have their operations in Japan, but they have the HQ in, in Singapore. That's why there is for Singapore. That's why maybe Southeast Asia is declining, but um, the funding goes to the Japanese project to Singapore. So yeah, and uh, Australia as well. Australia is actually developing quite quite fast in terms of the funding as well. Mm -hmm. So you do invest in the companies from the Asia and you help your portfolio companies to expand to the Asian markets, right? Um, the second, yes, uh, about investing, we were very selective. I would say we haven't made any investments, uh, during these three years so far, mm. uh, we, uh, look at areas where we really kind of where we have the strongest expertise and the the problem with investing like why why we don't rush into the market and just invest in um, every interesting company that we find is because first of all you don't have like we we don't have the um strong presence like strong uh, our presence is not strong enough in order to see each and every deal to make the conclusion uh we don't always have the context uh that's another challenge and uh, usually the competition of lo from local vcs is quite harsh um and of course there is a huge risk that if you invest without a proper due diligence without, without a proper uh, understanding of the context you may basically be adversely selected and um, get all the bad deals um, and that's why we don't rush, but, uh, we still look like, I, uh, we still look at some deep tech companies or some FinTech infrastructure companies. Uh, the biggest, uh, criteria for us is first that the technology should be as strong as the competing technologies in Europe or the U S because essentially we are big believers that, um, regardless where the companies are located, they need to be global companies. And that's the example of Acronis, for example, which was born in Singapore, but it's uh, not uh, like the Singapore is not the largest market for Acronis, of course, and not even Southeast Asia. Uh, it's the US and Germany and uh, then Japan um, because because of the product, because the product is great and uh, the uh, team is very strong. And uh, the same, we uh, we use the same criteria for any new companies from Asia as well. Like, um, for example, there's a quantum company, maybe from Japan, maybe from Australia, maybe from Singapore, which developed really strong tech, which we see is stronger than, uh, the one that you, uh, for example, European labs or us labs have, and we see that the team is really strong as well. And we can help them actually to scale to Europe or to the US and th that's the value where we can bring. And in this case, I think that's, that would be credible, but, uh, we haven't invested in any such companies so far. We have a few in our pipeline, uh, quite interesting ones, but, um, haven't pulled the trigger yet. Mm -hmm. And on the second part of the question, uh, 
is it really possible to expand uh, from the US or the Europe to China or Japan, for example? Or is it possible to raise uh, money there from local VCs? Yeah, it's uh, th those are very good questions. Um, the answer, the short answer, yes. Uh, but then the long answer is depending on the vertical, depending on the stage, depending on geography. Um, China is the hardest market you could ever enter, ever, uh, especially if you're a uh, high tech company, especially if you're a deep tech company. Like, I would say deep tech company, like from the US, is like this is like US deep tech company coming to China. This, I think, the, the hardest uh, case. Uh, because of geopolitics, because a lot of sensitive things. Um, and uh, uh, especially if you're a software company, um, then it's even harder because China um, is a market, surprisingly. So China seems to be a big market, right? It's, it is a big market. But in reality, when you start analyzing some industries, like, for example, B2B SaaS, B2B SaaS, like cloud um, infrastructure or just um, SaaS solutions which use cloud, the barriers for entering the Chinese market are just extremely hard. They're extremely high uh, because you cannot use Amazon, for example. You cannot use any other um, ho uh, like international hosting in China. You need to have the local company which will be operating the cloud for you. So you will already uh, be giving part of your business, part of your infrastructure to local players that influences your, affects your unit economics, of course. Then uh, depending who you sell to, if you sell to governments, if you sell to finance, uh, they don't usually buy foreign software at all. Like there is a, it's not like a law, but it's a, just an formal requirement. Uh, you will just, you will never win any tender and you need to localize, you need to figure out like one of the ways is probably try to find a Chinese distributors better if they localize the product as well, but not too much so that they will not steal your product completely so that they will still be dependent on you. So it's like, I would say it's possible, but it's so hard and it requires so much investments that usually companies which may choose between China and uh, Japan or China and uh, uh, Singapore, China and Jakarta, uh, Indonesia, China and uh, uh, even India, they don't choose China because uh, also like the, the investments are high uh, risks are high um, and it takes a lot of time. So that's why I would say China, like it's really hard. I would say I don't uh, really uh, focus on bringing our companies to China nowadays uh, because there are other markets. Japan, for example, is an interesting market because if you can crack Japan, uh, it's actually a big market. Uh, Japan is like the fourth economy and um, uh, the income is high. There are a lot of corporates, 
And um, there is another factor which is called like build over buy or buy over, over build, uh, which means that um, in Japan, developers, and the, you don't have very strong developers and developers are, are quite um, expensive. Uh, so uh, that, that is why it's easier for Japanese corporates to buy software rather than to build it in-house. In contrast to China, for example, where it's extremely mm -hmm. easy for um, Chinese corporates just to hire a lot of pretty good developers, like Chinese developers are really good. Hire a lot of developers and just copy the whole thing. Why not? Like, it's not prohibited. I mean, uh, unless you can uh, navigate through the IP landscape it's still doable but japan will never do it because it's just it's too hard it's too expensive they just rather buy it and they're not price sensitive they can buy like they the price can be pretty high for any software and the market is huge uh another thing is that japanese <clears throat> customers are very loyal uh, if you analyze the retention rate of uh, companies which enter Japanese markets, like the cohorts look very, very impressive because usually Japanese uh, companies, customers, especially enterprise customers, they almost never churn. It's just, yeah, they just buy you because they like you because they're, they're loyal. And that's a huge bonus, I mean. Um, yes, Japanese economy isn't growing yet, but it's still a huge piece of pie. Uh, pretty similar to Korea, uh, also very hard market to crack, but if you can crack it, it's very large buy over build market. Um, so these two, then Australia, of course, very interesting, very easy. If you are a Western founder because of language, because of the mentality so yeah it's just the only problem of, of australia is just it's too far and mm. then depending on the vertical as well uh india um, india is a hard market as well i would say it's a, like it's very similar to china in regard that uh it's built over by you will always be uh competing with other uh with your like competitors but also with uh, the in-house team of your customers and uh, um, India in contrast to Japan is very price sensitive uh, and uh, it's very um, decentralized like you basically like every state of India is different and um, it's really hard to scale through the whole country so India is also very hard. We, I, I haven't dealt with India very much, but so far this is the, like, according to some of the attempts that we had and some of the feedback of our existing portfolios, like, uh, it's quite hard. Uh, Southeast Asia depends on the industry because um, Southeast Asia is very fragmented. Like, uh, people say that Europe is fragmented. No, guys, just look at Southeast Asia. Southeast Asia, like, you uh, entered Philippines, it doesn't mean that you'll be successful in Vietnam. It doesn't mean that you'll be successful in Indonesia and the same goes vice versa. It's just, um, and then you also have built over buy in those three locations like Vietnam, Indonesia, Philippines. Uh, they have maybe not that good, but still okay developers, quite cheap. 
and they will always try to copy uh, or, or will just, they do not, they, they will not be hasty with making the decision about buying the software because they always compare, oh, okay, uh, how much will be my cost if I just copy it or if I just create the in-house. But it also depends because, um, for example, banking industry, surprisingly, like for Mambu, uh, our portfolio company, Indonesia, Vietnam, and Philippines are quite a big market. Like they sell to banks, but they also sell to fintech startups. And uh, I guess because there was a huge hype and there was a huge amount of funding, you know, fintech startups in Southeast Asia, they managed to get quite a lot of big customers from there. So it depends. It really depends on the industry. The same as, for example, um, if you expand like uh, agri-tech um, SaaS to Indonesia, it, it could make sense. Same as biotech, for example. Uh, but if you expand like a standard, I don't know, like B2B SaaS automation, uh, horizontal solution to uh, Indonesia is going to be like really hard. I would probably rather start with countries like Thailand or Malaysia because the income is higher and uh, again they don't have the um, that strong developers there and um, it, those those are still a quite a big markets but it depends it really depends case by case uh, you also also mentioned that one of your responsibilities is to raise funds for the runa itself right yes yeah so what's the LP environment in the Asia market? Uh, who's the more, the biggest contributors to the VC? Mm, so I think there are two questions actually. Uh, first is uh, in regard of the local VCs, like who invests in the local VC ecosystem and then who invests in VCs in general. Like we as a foreign VC, uh, we have a slightly, probably challenging task, but um, I'll probably start with the local VC ecosystem. Um, the biggest part, like if you analyze or if you ask your friendly VCs in Southeast Asia, for example, who are your LPs, most of them say that those are the likes of uh, Temasek, for example, or sovereign other sovereign funds, like in Malaysia's uh, Hazana, um or others and uh um uh, those are quite kind of obvious options mm -hmm. because they are government backed and uh, the their task is to incentivize the local ecosystem and uh, the fund which is based in singapore is the best way basically to incentivize the local ecosystem is so it possible they to... are... uh, sorry uh is it possible to raise uh for the us fund for example from the temasek like us funds going to saudi arabia for example yeah it's it's possible but uh well in particular like from temasek they uh but they would have a, di a slightly different criteria so they're like uh from what i see and of course uh, I, I should probably uh spend more time on this to give like a proper answer but i guess that um if we talk about uh, foreign VCs, 
large LPs usually invest in those either because those are quite strong brands like Sequoia, uh, Tiger, uh, Andreessen, Bessemer, names that we all know. Uh, or they are really strong specialists in specific areas mm-hmm. like uh, the AI focused fund. And this is like the, it should be like a top 10 AI fund uh, that they will invest or like the one of the best fintech focused funds, which invests only in fintech. And the, the rationale is that they would, they invest in such VCs to get the pipeline, to get the network, to get the expertise, to then back their portfolio companies on later stages. And this is the rationale for most of the institutional investors. This is uh, the reason for corporate investors also to invest in such funds. Um, I would say uh, raising for generalist non, not like for generalist fund, which is not that famous as Andreessen, for example, from Asian v, uh, LPs is like super hard. It's, I would say nearly impossible. They would rather invest somewhere in the local um, VCs. These are institutionals, but then there are also family offices, of course, uh, families, like in Southeast Asia, especially, I think very similar actually to Kazakhstan. Um, A lot of traditional businesses were made on real estate, on uh, energy, on uh, agriculture, uh, any other traditional businesses, they have the money, they would, they could possibly um, diversify, but here it depends, like um, a lot of them actually go rather to investment bankers, not the VCs, and they prefer to invest in fixed income, um, in, um, again, real estate probably, somewhere which is safe and more clear, less risky. And this is also the mentality of um, at least Southeast Asia and also I think in Asia, Asia in general, that first, if you if you talk about something which is not close to you, it's very like, it's very foreign, it's considered not clear and in general, like very shady for them because it's just something that they don't know. And then the new topics, m- many, I can say even in many places, the culture is more like a risk averse rather than risk uh, taking. And that's why it kind of, um, it makes the work of global VCs raising capital from Asia quite hard. Um, on the other side, what is interesting what is current what i'm observing currently is that there is a generational shift in many of those uh family businesses like for example third or fourth generation um people become like in their 30s maybe even 20s and they have become some kind of a power to an authority to allocate some of the capital and uh, they are more entrepreneurial and they they probably studied somewhere abroad they worked abroad and they see that actually 
the uh, the way how the traditional industry works for their families uh, is not it shouldn't be the same all the time like technology is disrupting it's really disrupting and they need to be uh, following the new trends and I think this is an interesting opportunity actually because uh, those people uh, they will become decision makers sooner or later yeah. and they will need to understand like what kind of technologies will influence their business will uh, have the great impact what are the risks what are the uh, like they cannot ignore this anymore and uh, I think uh, it's uh, quite an interesting opportunity to try to basically build relationships with uh, those people uh, educate them and uh, basically explain how you can be helpful how your portfolio companies may help their existing businesses and just in general kind of uh increase the awareness and i think that this is an opportunity i i am quite i'm quite bullish that um in southeast asia and in asia in general it's um uh, it's such a huge market right and uh, it cannot be just um the way it is all the time like it it will be disrupted and it will be more mature and um, i think this is just a matter of timing and the matter of who will be First, who will be, um, uh, who will have the better knowledge about this, about the region, and about the needs? And I think okay. uh, I'm quite bullish on it. Let's move to the last question, more of the educational one. I personally read, uh, like Take in Asia, uh, listen for a few star uh, podcasts like Analyze Asia. Uh, what you can recommend to read? about the Asia market, Asia Pacific, about the Chinese markets, uh, to educate yourself uh, in the tech industry of the Asia? Mm. Mm, I think, well, I, I also read Tech in Asia. I like Tech, uh, tech in Asia. Uh, I think they're doing a really great job of uh, putting up a lot of uh, analysis around different topics, and they cover pretty much all the major events and do also their own analysis. Um, I would say probably Tech in Asia is, is a good source. Um, and then depending on the vertical as well. So if you're interested in FinTech, you could probably, well, um, uh, subscribe for a few podcasts. Um, and um, about China, it's of course quite hard if you don't speak Chinese. Uh, because there's just tons of information which is in, only in Chinese. Um, there are some sources, though, which focus on China, uh, which are in English, like uh, TechNode, for example, is one of them, uh, or um, some others as well. I may probably, uh, I know that um, uh, China analytics or something, uh, I can probably just uh, send it later. Um, but yeah, I would say if you, if you want to have like a really, I would say high level, but still pretty full understanding of what is happening in tech and APAC, tech in Asia would be the best source for you. Okay. Uh, do you have one the main lesson uh, that you get from the three years of the 
uh, work in VC fund? One main lesson. Um, I don't think there, <laughs> it's really hard to pick one. <laughs> Maybe like, one lesson yeah, that the main, the, the was... main one. Um, mm -hmm. I was, uh, um, I think mm, maybe maybe two, uh, and then I could probably decide which one is uh, the main one. But uh, the first one is really about the focus. I think that something that kind of came to me not uh, at once, but I think that what proved to be quite credible strategy, like having a focus on something that you like maximize your strengths and uh, really try not to defocus too much, uh, but really kind of try to, uh, like if you do something new, if you penetrate a new market, like you need to penetrate with something that you really good at. And uh, the other one is more about VC and also about Asia. It's actually what uh, our managing partner, Dmitry uh, Shechov, uh, usually says that, uh, VC is a marathon, and I think it's a really good saying that, um, and especially in Asia, because in Asia, everything is really long. Um, you should really invest a lot of your time, of your efforts in something that you think, uh, should work. Maybe if it doesn't work right now, it, that it maybe it doesn't work like in a year, but you if you're convinced that it it should be working then you just need to keep doing this um and uh eventually that would be your kind of investment and it will it will pay off because many people actually give up when they uh when they start like entering asia or doing vc um understanding some topic like investing in quantum, for example, or whatever, some something which is hard. Because if you really manage to cope with this, if you manage to overcome those difficulties, it will be your uh, competitive advantage. It will basically be defensible for you. You might say that, oh, I, I did it for like five years. Uh, and uh, if it, it's not it's not really easy for other potential competitors to come and say, oh, I can do the same because for you, it took like five years. It should be, um, it should be hard for them also to do, to do, to reach the same level. So I think it really kind of, uh, you should find the area where you the best at and uh, try to just invest, invest, invest in it, mm -hmm. uh, your time, your efforts, your attention, uh, and then it will pay off. So thanks, Denise. Uh, really great conversation. Thank you. Uh, full of insights on the topics that we didn't uh, touch uh, previously on the podcast. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much, Dimash. Thank you for inviting. Yeah, uh, anytime would be happy to uh, jump on a call and share so, some more ideas. Thank you for listening to the Ivy Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to our RSS feed on ivypodcast.com and all major podcasting platforms like Spotify and iTunes. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a rating on iTunes.